Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 6, Moaning Mandela. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Mope when we mope. Retire undefeated when we retire undefeated. And today, I'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 6, Moaning Lisa, which first aired on February the 11th, 1990. And in quite a rare occurrence, I'll be talking about a historical event that also happened on February 11th, 1990. And that was when that was when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. So not only is it a historical event, it's a huge historical event. So pressure's on, and I've got 20 minutes to get through it. So, <laughs> so good luck me. Right, well, I'd, I'd best get a, uh, a wriggle on then. So I, I guess what all of our listeners will be asking uh, is what was the UK number one on February the 11th, 1990? Uh, well, it was still nothing compares to you. Uh, yeah. And at number two, it was still Technotronic. So what else is happening? Well, at number three, we have Beats International featuring Lindy Layton with Dub Be Good To Me. So for anybody unfamiliar, uh, this was a British electronic act formed by the former bass player from the House Martins, Norman Cook, who after this would go on to be in Freak Power, Pizza Man and the Mighty Dubcats. Mm-hmm. He's a bit naughty, though. Uh, the bass line is from Guns of Brixton by The Clash who I hate, and most of the lyric and vocal melody is lifted from the SOS band's Just Be Good To Me, which itself peaked at number 13 in 1983. And this all cost Cook a packet, but I imagine he doesn't mind too much these days, because that little boy who everybody sued grew up to be Fatboy Slim. (laughs) I had no idea that that was Norman Cook who did that song. The US viewership for this episode uh, had a uh, Nielsen rating of 13.8, which made it 34th in the ratings and the highest rated Fox show of the week. Uh, The production number was 7G06. Bear with me, it will get interesting. Well, to me, anyway. Uh, We're back to having a chalkboard and a couch gag this week, which is good. Uh, The chalkboard gag is, uh, I will not instigate revolution. Now, isn't that a nice bit of serendipity? Absolutely. Not many people were listening to that message in the early 90s, as we've already heard from you uh, on this podcast thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, the couch gag, another simple one. The Simpsons pile onto the couch. Maggie pops up in the air and Marge catches her. There's definitely some repeats this season. I think they, they had um, every one in at least two episodes. I think we'll be seeing this one again in Krusty Gets Busted in a few episodes' time. So what happens? Well, we find Lisa staring into the bathroom mirror as Homer bangs on the door. She leaves the bathroom in a daze and drifts through the normal family morning, including Homer losing his keys and Lisa herself getting the short end of a lack of cupcakes. After her improvised saxophone solo gets her in trouble with her music teacher... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, improvised during what seems to be God Save the Queen. And I, I always watched that one growing up and said, why on earth is an American school band playing God Save the Queen? What's going on there? Well, I think I can answer your question there, Tom. The song in which there is no place for crazy bebop is not God Save the Queen, but, and we are recording this on the 4th of July, so there will never be a better time to have this discussion, (laughs) it is My Country, Tis of Thee. Mm. Now, the melody for God Save the King, stroke Queen, uh, dependent on weather, uh, writer unknown, is also used as the, the national anthem of Liechtenstein. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Which is called Oben am Jungen Rhein. I've probably pronounced all of that wrong, but there we go. And also the royal anthem of Norway, Kongisangen. I've almost certainly pronounced all of that wrong. Uh, But in the United States, the melody is used for the patriotic song My Country, Tis of Thee. And now we're going to Wikipedia. So, (laughs) citation needed. But My Country, Tis of Thee, also known as America, is an American patriotic song whose lyrics were written by Samuel Francis Smith, when he was asked to translate or rewrite some lyrics for tunes found in German school songbooks. The song served as one of the de facto national anthems of the United States, along with songs like Hail Columbia, before the adoption of the Star Spangled Banner as the official US national anthem in 1931, which seems awfully late. Wow. But there we go. Um, And... uh, I'm going to I'm going to favour you with a verse here as well. Oh yes, uh, just please. To create a, a magic moment for everybody. Yeah. <clears throat> to the tune of God Save the Queen. 
My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountain side let freedom ring. Lovely. It's a 4th of July special for you there. There were four verses. A fifth was added to celebrate Washington's centennial, and there were two more added by Henry Van Dyke, and an additional five abolitionist verses written by A.G. <laughs> Duncan in 1843. But for our purposes, it's probably worth noting that the song will later be sung, tearfully, by Homer Simpson, as the Coriolis effect is reversed in Season 6, Episode 16, the stone-cold classic Bart vs. Australia. Yes, of course it is. Although I am told that that isn't actually how the Coriolis effect works, which is an argument <laughs> for 113 episodes' time. Absolutely. And, the, and I've just written up underneath, give out about God Save the Queen, because I think that's a terrible national anthem. It is, it is. But what I find bizarre about that is you have America, a country that fought a revolutionary war to become free of the British Empire, and someone went, oh, oh, we can't sing God Save the King anymore. But the tune, we love the tune. <laughs> Got to find some way of keeping that tune. So, you know, rewrite a, rewrite a song with different lyrics. And they haven't done anything else to it. They haven't, like, transposed it or put it in a different key or anything like that. It's the exact same song. Yeah. That's, it's, that's so bizarre. It doesn't seem a very good symbol of independence, does it? To, to, to take away the main symbol of the country that yeah, you're, uh, yeah. you're trying to break away from. And we had to wait until 30, 1931 to get the Star Spangled Banner. I, I find that very strange. Because as a song, I love the Star Spangled Banner. Because it's so obviously from a drinking song. <laughs> if you just, you, you're there after ten bottles of beer on the 4th of July. Go, oh, 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 say can you... Early light. It's perfect. Perfect drinking song. Excellent. Well, I know what we'll be doing next 4th of July, but um, maybe we should get back to the episode so, oh, yes. we, so we've got time to talk about Nelson Mandela. Yes, good idea. So, after her improvised saxophone solo, blah de blah de blah where we got up to before, uh, she refuses to participate in the usual food fight and simply cannot bring herself to dodge balls in dodgeball. And she comes to the conclusion that she is too sad. Now, to cut through the gravitas of this, we jump to the B-plot. And really, aside from arguably Simpsons roasting, our first ever B-plot in The Simpsons. Of Bart and Homer playing Super Slugfest on their home games console. Bart utterly destroys Homer for what we hear is the 49th time, before they are interrupted by a note from school, which Homer assumes is about more of Bart's monkey shines, but is actually about Lisa's depression. Homer, whilst well-meaning, cannot fathom her despair, and resorts to punishing Bart, as, in times of trouble, you've got to go with what you know. <laughs> After he blames Lisa's saxophone playing for his 50th consecutive Super Slugfest lost. See, the two stories are linked. Mm -hmm. Really yep. poor, poorly, but they are linked. Yeah. Lisa hears another saxophone through her window and runs off to track it down, finding jazz musician Bleeding Gums Murphy sat on a bridge. The same one, I believe, that Homer tries to throw himself from in Homer's Odyssey. Marge dreams of her childhood, and hears her mother tell her to put on a happy face so people will know she has a good mother whilst Homer has a nightmare of Bart bludgeoning him to death. Meanwhile, Lisa befriends the stranger she met on the bridge, I'm just going to leave that there, and finds that not even the blues can make her feel better. Marge eventually collects her. Marge takes a morose Lisa to band practice, whilst Homer makes a sneaky stop at Noiseland Video Arcade, where a kid called Howie teaches him how to batter Bart at the game. Marge tells Lisa to suppress her feelings and smile so she'll fit in, be invited to parties, and boys will like her. But on seeing how Lisa is treated by her music teacher and peers, she apologises unreservedly and tells her, and I'm going to quote this in full, Always be yourself. If you want to be sad, honey, be sad. We'll ride it out with you. And when you get finished feeling sad, we'll still be there. From now on, let me do the smiling for both of us. This genuinely makes Lisa smile, and the two go home to find Homer exacting his revenge on Bart, but Marge unplugs the console before he can win, causing Bart to immediately announce his retirement for video boxing before he can be beaten. The family then go to the jazz hole to watch Lisa perform with Bleeding Gums. Bleeding Gums performs Lisa's song. Yes. Yes. So, that is another season one episode of The Simpsons dealing with 
a huge issue mm. in depression. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is this is easily my favourite episode of the first series for so many reasons. You said you said just then with a subplot. I think this is the first episode of Simpsons we see which ends up with that plot structure which it becomes known for. So, so you have your main plot, which is Lisa dealing with depression, and you have your subplot, which is the video boxing. And as you say, they're kind of clunkily linked, especially at the end, but they do, but they do come together. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the subject matter because The Simpsons was dealing with things that other shows just, just weren't dealing with with at all they weren't touching them with a barge pole i take it that that lisa has depression and and she's going through an existential crisis and i've done a phd and have and doing a p and and if you do a phd having an ex- existential crisis is kind of mandatory so um yeah i can i can certainly relate with her there there's a, a line there where homer says she doesn't look sad i don't see tears in her eyes um and lisa replies it's not that kind of sad um, and I agree. I, um, I have suffered from depression before, more sort of acute than sort of uh, ongoing clinical. But it's, for me, it's not like being sad. It's more of a sort of an absence of feeling. Yeah. I think that's why it's it, it's sometimes difficult for people to relate to. You know, kind of depression mm. and sadness have become so so linked yeah. uh, in yeah. people's minds uh, mm. that when it doesn't manifest in that way, it's difficult for people to sort of get their heads around. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they do really well if, of having an eight-year-old trying to explain what depression is. And, you know, she's sad. She's just sad. You know, it says glum on the tube of toothpaste in that opening shot. And, uh, yeah, it's great. It's also worth noting this is the first Lisa episode as well. So up until mm. this point, we've had uh, two Barts, two Homers, and an ensemble piece. Uh, we've got Marge coming up in a couple of episodes as well. So uh, I, I hadn't actually realised until I looked at it that they they ticked off like every character having an episode in season one. I thought that was a later uh, a later development, but um, yeah. So there we go. We also have our uh, second prank call to Mo in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, asking for a jock strap. And uh, much as the depression plot is undercut with the B plot, I'm now going to undercut this by being incredibly lowbrow. Uh, and mentioning how much I like the scenes in the uh, in the arcade. Um, yeah. As a as a former avid arcade gamer who spent uh, every birthday at Clacton on Sea trying out the latest machines, uh, including the Simpsons arcade game itself, the legendary four player scrolling beat 'em up, which was produced so early in the life of the show that the enemies don't bear any resemblance to any in show yeah, characters, that's right. except for uh, Smithers and Burns. I remember I remember completing that game whilst I was in America when I was about twelve. So uh, yeah, again, fond memories of that too. It is a good one. There was there was a lot of good games of that caliber at the time. The, the mm. Turtles one as well, which mm. was a, a yeah, definitely. Beat em up. But before I just wind up listing games that I liked. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Well, the, uh, welcome to the beat 'em up show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did discuss a Street Fighter podcast, so you know it's, we uh, did. But uh, yeah, I, I really recognise that sort of uh, that mix of the sort of sticky, dowdy environs of a of an arcade, but filled with the sort of magical light and sound and the allure of the sort of attract screens and everything. Um, there were some um, some machines that were featured uh, in in the arcade that I would like to uh, draw attention to. <laughs> yeah, um, Time Waster being one of them. <laughs> Robert Galay himself uh, later appears in season five, episode ten, Springfield, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Legalized Gambling. Yes, so uh, he, yep. he will appear. Uh, and Escape from Grandma's House, which Bart will play next season in Bart Gets an F. Oh yes, of course he does. So there we go. I'm just going to uh, circle back to mention that the uh, the writer is. John Schwartzwelder. But we just discussed him for a good 10 minutes of the last episode. We did, uh, we did. So we'll probably skip that one. Uh, onto the character debuts, we of course have Bleeding Gums Murphy, as voiced mainly by Ron Taylor. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, Ron Taylor had an interesting career. He played a Klingon chef in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, he played Porthos of the Three Musketeers, uh, with Star Trek The Next Generation's Brent Spiner as a fellow musketeer. So there's a lot, a lot of trekking going on here. Uh, and created and starred in the musical review It Ain't Nothing But The Blues. Uh, for The Simpsons, he only did Bleeding Gums. Uh, he did it here. And in Season 6, Episode 22, Round Springfield. And also on the album The Simpsons Sings The Blues. But the character actually appears in the third episode, Dancing Homer, uh, where he doesn't speak, 
but sings the national anthem at a baseball game, uh, his version lasting 26 minutes. Uh, for that appearance, he was voiced by American Christian singer, both gospel and contemporary, I'm assured, Daryl Lynn Coley. Okay. Now, it's difficult to know what to say about Bleeding Gums at this stage, because he's going to have a full backstory uh, explanation when we eventually yes. get to Round Springfield. Uh, but that's in five and a half seasons' time, and also features Bill Cosby. Uh, for now, we learn that his nickname was given to him since he's never been to the dentist's, as he's got enough pain in his life as it is. <laughs> Ralph Wiggum makes his debut, but not our Ralph Wiggum. Uh, in early appearances, he wasn't portrayed as quite as different as he is in later series. Uh, and indeed, even his character model is different at first, with his more familiar appearance first shown in Homer versus Lisa and the Eighth Amendment. So I think we'll just skip him for now, because there'll be, there'll be a more appropriate time to introduce him. Uh, and technically, Jacqueline Bouvier, who is uh, Marge, Patty and Selma's mother, debuts here. Uh, but she's in flashback. So again, it's probably more appropriate to talk about her in a later episode. What does that leave us with? That leaves us with Mr. Dewey Largo, who does yeah. not debut here because he was in uh, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. But this is his largest part to date. And so frequently is he used from here on that this might actually be his largest part full stop. Yes. Certainly in storyline importance. So let's dwell on him for a little, because uh, it really won't take that long. No. So okay. uh, Mr. Largo teaches music at Springfield Elementary, and he cannot conceive of any music not written or at least arranged by Sousa. He has taken over for groundskeeper Willie. He is heavily implied to be gay, and at one stage he was awaiting sex reassignment surgery, although that was probably a poorly judged joke. Uh, from the later series? Yeah, from the later series. Yeah, yes. okay. Um, he is most famous for two things. Appearing scarcely, uh, which is referenced in Season 10, Episode 13, Homer to the Max, where Lisa says, Producers fiddle with shows all the time. They change characters, drop others, and push some into the background, at which point Mr. Largo and the Capital City Goofball walk past the window. <laughs> and, despite his scarcity, appearing in the opening credits to The Simpsons, even to this day. So there we go. And uh, would you like some uh, did-you-knows before I sign off? Yes, please. Excellent. So, the Moaning Lisa Blues, as written for and performed in this episode, appears in an extended version on Simpsons Sing the Blues. Hence, the Simpsons do actually sing the blues on that album. Bleeding Gums, e.g. Ron Taylor, also provides a version of God Bless the Child on that album. Super Slugfest, which is the boxing game, uh, that Homer and Bart play, is extremely reminiscent of Punch-Out! by Nintendo. Not the all-singing, all-dancing arcade version, but specifically the NES version, which featured super-deformed characters and a top-down perspective, rather than the arcade's much larger characters and over-the-shoulder view. Mm -hmm. It's still well-loved amongst fans, and is essentially a pattern memorization game, relying on the player learning the CPU character's attack pattern and counter-attacking at the correct point. It was marketed at one stage as Mike Tyson's Punch-Out!, which was a risk by Nintendo as they signed him as the face of the series before he won the world titles he would later get. Mm. Since the license expired, he has been replaced in the game by Mr. Dream. Oh, Mr. Dream came after Mike Tyson? Yes. Oh, okay. As far as I can tell. I, I thought he came before, and then Mike Tyson was put in for the length of the license, and then he came after. That's what I assume, because I've played both versions of that game where it's Mr. Dream and... And where it's Mike Tyson. So, so, so yeah, I assumed that the license for Mike Tyson came after the game was a success. But it's, obviously not. From what I can tell, it was after the arcade version was out, but before the NES version was out. Oh, okay. Now, I could be very wrong about that. Uh, and if there are any video game historians out there who would like to uh, prove me wrong... I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm happy to be proved <laughs> wrong if I am wrong. Um, then uh, tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't yep. forget the underscore, because we can't. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. Uh, and one last uh, thing to mention. Before we move on from Super Slugfest, the referee in that game bears more than a passing resemblance to Matt Groening's old Life in Hell characters, Jeff and Akbar. Ah. They will later appear in Homer's Triple Bypass as the Aorta Fairy Finger Puppets, used by Homer to explain his operation to his children. And finally, Barney's Bolarama is mentioned in this episode. Now, this isn't a, a did-you-know-specific to this episode, but it's a, it's a fun fact I found out while I've been uh, researching for the series thus far. Why is it called that? Because Barney Gumble was meant to own it. Okay. The writers later became convinced that Barney couldn't run a bowling alley in his advanced state of alcoholism, so when Homer got a job there in And Maggie Makes Three, it was run by Barney's uncle, Al. And that's so, me. That is me for this week. So, Nelson Mandela. I assume this will be a quick one. <laughs> right. Well, 
Okay, so the story of Nelson Mandela. Now, like I say, it's rare that an air date of the episode of The Simpsons we discuss and the important historical event happen on the same day, but they do in this case. Moaning Lisa was first aired on February the 11th, 1990, the exact same day that Nelson Mandela was released from prison and his release was televised. So what I like the idea is, is uh, if you were in the States, you could have watched Nelson Mandela being released from prison and then later that night watched, watched uh, Moaning Lisa. I mean, surely that's everybody's fancy television doubleheader. I mean, that would that would have been an amazing day if you were a, if you were a fan of freedom, I suppose, and a fan of The Simpsons. Okay, so I should warn people that I'll be talking about the apartheid regime, and it's pretty horrible. But I think it's important that awful periods of history are confronted and discussed, so that they don't get forgotten. Okay, so history of South Africa. Now it's very complicated, so I'm going to try and condense it down into a few minutes. Nowadays, the population of South Africa is made up of dozens of different groups of people from all over the place. Before European settlers arrived, the ethnic makeup of the country included people such as the Zulu and the Zosa. Now I work with a guy who happens to speak that language, and it's one of those clicky languages. So it's X. H-O-S-A, and it's only Sosa, something like that. Okay. I can't do it, but just for reference. So the Portuguese were the first Europeans to explore the region back in the 15th century. There were no European settlements in South Africa until the Dutchman Jan van Rijbeek, hope I'm saying that right, established a station for the Dutch East India Company at the Cape of Good Hope in 1652, and this would go on to become Cape Town. So this is sort of in the southwest of the country. Some employees of the company would hang around after serving their time with it, and they became known as free citizens. With it being the 17th century, slavery was prevalent, and the Dutch brought slaves to the colony from places like Madagascar and Indonesia. The Dutch expanded eastwards and fought a series of wars against the Sosa. The Dutch farmers who worked the lands they acquired became known as Boers. As time progressed, the Dutch language they spoke evolved into a new language, one called Afrikaans. And in 1795, the British got involved. Back in Europe, the Netherlands had fallen to France, so the British occupied Cape Town to keep it from the French. It became part of the British Empire following the defeat of Napoleon, and many British migrated there. Around this time, the Zulu king Shaka rose to power, and... He controlled a huge amount of the interior of the country. Meanwhile, many Dutch migrated east and formed the Boer Republics. So in terms of who's in charge from a European perspective, you've got the British in the west and you've got the Dutch in the east. In the latter part of the 19th century, gold and diamonds were discovered in the interior of the country, which led to more European migration. On the back of this, 1879 saw the Anglo-Zulu Wars, with the British attempting to take control of Zulu territories. Although the Zulu won the Battle of Isandwana, immortalised in the Michael Caine film Zulu... Ah, right. Yeah, I was going to ask. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, they lost the war. Before the turn of the century, the British fought the Boers in what became known as the Boer Wars. The British prevailed and the Boer Republics were incorporated into the Union of South Africa in 1910, and it became part of the British Empire. This became fully independent from the UK in 1931, and between 1910 and 1931, the African National Congress emerged to represent the interests of, of uh, black people. On to the messy business of the apartheid regime. And although there were race-based laws going back years including ones that stopped black people from voting, the 1948 election brought a huge change in South Africa. The election was won by the National Party, who under the leadership of D.F. Milan started to bring in laws that heralded a regime known as apartheid. The first of these laws was the 1949 Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, followed by the 1950 Immorality Act. These laws made it illegal for people considered to be of different races to marry. The Population Act of the same year codified things, and if it wasn't ugly enough before, it's about to get even uglier. The Act divided people up into racial groups. White, black, coloured, the language of the time, and Indian, and that's people from India. The government would decide your legal status and later where you lived based on 
what race they decided that you belonged to. In the case of quote-unquote coloured people, they could even decide that people from the same families could be of different races. And they ended up splitting people up. Now, I'm, I, I, we've talked about the idea of privilege on the show before, but, I mean, what we've talked about so far doesn't even come close to that. Mm. You know, it's just, it's just absolutely horrible. It's easy to think of apartheid as something that dictates what beaches people could go to and what events they could attend, that kind of thing. But they're examples of what was known as petty apartheid. The grand apartheid was much worse. What the government did was set up areas known as Bantu Stans, and each Bantu Stan was considered a semi-autonomous state, complete with their own laws and even flags. These states were not recognised internationally, they were only recognised by the South African government. And during the apartheid era, the South African government started a programme of forced removals, and the numbers are just staggering. So between 1960 and 1983, some three and a half million non-white South Africans were removed from their homes and forced to live where the government told them to. Many black people were moved to the Bantu Stans, but they were moved in other ways as well, possibly the most notable being 60,000 people who were moved from Sophia Town to the Soweto Township, just outside Johannesburg. So that's a very, very brief glimpse into the history and a summary of apartheid. So now on to Nelson Mandela. He was born in 1918 in what was then Cape Province. He was a Zosa, and, and this is a bit complicated again. He was born into Thembu royalty. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. T-H-E-M-B-U. His great-grandfather was the king of the Thembu people. He went to a Methodist school and had a Christian education. In 1939, he started a degree at Fort Hare University. He was involved in all sorts of student activities, but one in particular would be rather detrimental to him. He got involved in a student council boycott against the quality of the food there. And because of that, he was suspended from the university and he never went back. He went back home, but quickly found out that his family had arranged a marriage for him. So he ran away to Johannesburg. While staying with his cousin, he met... ANC activist Walter Sisulu. Sisulu got him a job at a law firm, and at this law firm there were Communist Party members working there, and they introduced Nelson Mandela to Communist Party gatherings. Although the Communist Party would have been atheist, so it would have gone against his Christianity, it wouldn't have been at all racist, because one of the things about communism, it's not racist, or mm. at least it's not supposed to be. So you would have had people from all backgrounds going to these Communist Party meetings. In 1943, Nelson Mandela started studying for a law degree at the University of Witwatersrand. He was the only black student there, and he experienced a fair deal of racism. While there, he joined the ANC and became more political. He helped to form the Youth League of the ANC. Following the election in 1948, he was amongst a group of ANC members that supported direct action, so boycotts and strikes, that sort of thing, against the apartheid government. This political action caused him to fail his final year at university, and he never completed his degree there. Ah, OK. Well, you know... He had more important things to I, I to think time was told that that was the right decision. I think so. So in 1950, Nelson Mandela became president of the ANC Youth League and took a seat on the ANC's national executive. That year also saw the government introduce the Suppression of Communism Act, which was designed to repress the direct action that people were taking against the government. I mean, in reality, it was a bit of a blank check for the government to clamp down on whatever they wanted to, because they could basically call anything they wanted communist. So around this time, Mandela read the works of Marx and Lenin and became more sympathetic to the communist cause. In 1952, the ANC started the defiance campaign against apartheid, initially intending it for it to be non-violent, Alan Mahatma Gandhi. Mandela addressed a crowd of 10,000 to the rally in Durban and was briefly arrested for it, you know, which, which you know, boosted his profile quite a lot. Mm. In July of 1952, he and other ANC members were arrested under the Suppression of Communism Act and given a suspended sentence. In December, the government tried to restrict his actions by banning him from talking to more than one person at a time. Now, that's a hell of a restriction. So, you know, that's, that's no rallies, no meetings, anything like that. Well, no, no anything. Yeah, really. pretty much. Pretty much. 
So away from politics, in 1953 he qualified as an attorney and opened his, his own law firm, specialising in cases of police brutality. The authorities reacted to that by taking its licence away, forcing them to relocate it to a remote location, so you know, making it very, very diff difficult for him to do any business. And in 1955, Mandela witnessed and protested against the forced relocation of 60,000 people from Sophia Town, and that's when things changed for him. He concluded that non-violence wasn't working, and that violent action was required. He requested arms from China, but that request was refused by the Chinese. In December 1956, Mandela and various other ANC members were arrested and put on trial for high treason. The trial was a bit of a farce. It didn't conclude until 1961, with a verdict of not guilty being reached by the judges. And during that time, civil unrest continued and the government banned the ANC. You know, went, went to go so far as to say, right, ANC, no, it's illegal now. Uh, in 1961, Mandela while disguising himself as a chauffeur, travelled around the country to gain support for the newly founded MK, which was to become the armed wing of the ANC. They started a campaign of sabotage by bombing on December 16th, 1961, targeting things like power plants and telephone lines, and doing it in the middle of the night to try and minimise casualties. Following this, the ANC sent Mandela to the 1962 meeting of the Pan-African Freedom Movement for East, Central and Southern Africa. Catchy title. Mm. Path Mexa, for short. So this was in Ethiopia. And by this time, he becomes a bit of a diplomatic superstar because he gets to meet with Emperor Haile Selassie I. And he then went off on a bit of a world tour. So he went to Egypt, then Tunisia, then various countries in West Africa, before he went to London to meet reporters and politicians. He then went back to Ethiopia to train in guerrilla warfare before going back to South Africa. Whilst back in South Africa, the police picked him up. And do you know who gave him the tip-off? The CIA. Mm-hmm. So remember, this is 1962. So this is, this is the height of the Cold War. So anyone who is remotely communist, the CIA have an interest in. Oh, right. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of it from that angle, but... Mm. Mandela was put on trial. The famous Rivonia trial concluded in 1964, with Mandela and his co-defendants being sentenced to life imprisonment for sabotage and conspiring to violently overthrow the government. And he was sent to Robin Island. So at this point in the story, Nelson Mandela is in jail. While inside, the apartheid regime continued unabated. But I want to take this opportunity to talk about something that we Westerners might be quite familiar with. That's Sun City. Sun City was founded in 1979 by the entrepreneur Sol Kersner in Stan in the north of the country. Because of its location, it could take advantage of the local laws of the Stan. Gambling and topless dancing were banned in South Africa, but not in the Stan. This quickly made Sun City a great holiday destination for white South Africans who wanted to be entertained. Now, by this time, a UN cultural boycott against the apartheid regime was in full swing, so any artists going there to perform were heavily frowned upon. Nevertheless, Kersner offered big money to the stars and several did perform. And here's, here's a list. Whether it's complete or not, I'm not entirely sure. But performing at Sun City were the Beach Boys, Linda Ronstadt of the Plough King fame. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. Cher, whether she wrote Turn Back Time about that performance, I don't know. Uh, Millie Jackson, Liza Minnelli... Frank Sinatra, Paul Anker, who would go on to write the jingle about not looking at monsters in one of the Halloween episodes of it's The Simpsons. It's got Paul Anker's guarantee. That's guarantee void in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And in a Bantu star, presumably. Uh, also, Status Quo. Status Quo! Oh! Yep, the Quo. Oh, took the, no! Uh, took the Sun City dollar. Say it ain't Quo. Mm. Uh, Rod Stewart. Oh, no, that I can believe. Yeah. And uh, Elton John, which is odd, given, given his philanthropic side of him. Uh, and, of course, most famously of all, Queen, who did several gigs and were fined by the Musicians' Union and put on a list of blacklisted artists by the UN. I just think it's astonishing that anyone would play Sun City, given the circumstances. I think it's important to keep that in mind when judging the legacy of these performers. Well, anyway, back to the story. I mean, the, the, the best we can really say is that there was a, an awful lot of money 
an awful lot of money. Mm. We would like to think a resistible amount of money. But, I mean, we look at the legacies of those artists, and they're, they're not exactly tainted, are they? It's, no. Uh, admittedly, no. Queen had to perform what is generally thought of as the greatest concert performance of all time for charity to get back into people's good graces. But they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Brian May would later perform God Save the Queen on the roof of Buckingham Palace. Rock and roll. Oh. Anyway, sorry, anyway, back to the story. As if this story wasn't depressing enough. Anyway, so over the course of the 80s, the South African government, led by P.W. Boffer, attempted some sort of reform of the apartheid systems. Coloured people and Indians, remember their terms, not mine, were given their own parliaments in 1983 in what became known as the Tricameral Parliament. Black Labour unions were allowed... And the old pass laws were abolished. So these are laws that controlled where black people could go. In 1985, Boffer offered to release Nelson Mandela on the condition that he renounced violence. Mandela's daughter Zinzi read out the reply in public, which stated, Violence is the responsibility of the apartheid regime. With democracy, there would be no need for violence. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a two fingers up at you, and, you know. He's prepared to stay in jail for his cause, essentially. Botter would meet Nelson Mandela in prison, even pouring his tea for him. In 1989, Botter suffered a stroke and was replaced by F.W. de Klerk. Oh, now there's a name I remember. Mm-hmm, yep. Under de Klerk, the pace of reform increased. In his opening address to Parliament in February 1990, de Klerk announced, among other things, that the ban on the ANC would be lifted and Nelson Mandela would be released from prison. Mandela walked free from prison on February 11th, 1990. In fact, I'm pretty sure I can remember watching it live on TV. Same as, yeah. Yeah. And he was literally walking free. He was, uh... he was. And I remember thinking, it just didn't seem like that big of a deal. It was just some people walking down the road. But, you know, you can think that when you're eight, I suppose. Well, for some reason, the one thing that really stuck with me is that it was on the BBC and the coverage changed channels midway through. So they were waiting for him to come out and say, well, we're going to be showing something else on BBC One, so carry on watching on BBC Two. You know, like it was a tennis match or something. <laughs> I was about to say, was it Wimbledon? But that would have been the wrong time of year. So uh... Yes, yes. So following Mandela's release, the apartheid system was dismantled over the next few years, culminating with the general election of 1994, where everyone was allowed to vote regardless of race. People queued for hours to cast their vote, which the ANC won by landslide. You know, they got 63% of the vote. Following this, Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa, a position he held until 1999. Mandela's presidency saw the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This provided an opportunity for victims of the apartheid regime to hear from the perpetrators, grant the perpetrators amnesty, and to provide reparations and rehabilitation to their victims. Mandela officially retired from politics in 1999, when his deputy Thabo Mbeki became president. He continued to be involved on the international stage, however, and his activities included campaigning for South Africa to host the 2010 World Cup. And he died on December the 5th, 2013, aged 95. See, the, my main takeaway from that is you think of apartheid as, as a single thing. But it's, a, it's an idea rather than a, a, just a, a thing, if you see what I mean. So when, mm. when I think about apartheid being reversed, it's almost think of it as, a, as an on-off switch. But it isn't. It's all, it's all no. those many, many laws that kind of all sort of crept along around the same time. And there was a definite strategy there, but would anybody have seen it until it was too late and that kind yeah. of thing? It's, uh, it just shows how um, insidious a sort of, a, a, a sort of shift in political... Uh, mm. ideology can be yeah and it would have been around for long enough for the ideas to have been bred into people yeah like like whatever background you were from you would you know if you grow up under apartheid then you're going to assume that that's normal you know whether you're white or black or whatever you just assume that right because of my skin color i've got to go and use this beach because of my skin color i've got these job prospects because of my skin colour, I've got to live here. And getting people out of that mindset, have, you know, you know when, when it's been bred into them, you know, going to take a lot of time. But, but the thing that really strikes me about Nelson Mandela, and I, I can certainly see why people worship him as a hero, because 
he was treated really, really badly in prison. He 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 certainly to start off with he had very little correspondence. I think he was allowed one letter and one visitor every six months to start off with. He lived in a very confined cell. They made him work in a lime quarry and they didn't give him any sort of eye protection so the glare from the lime caused damage to his eyes. And to go through all of that and to come out and say, right, let's put all of that behind us. Let's let's do the truth and reconciliation and let's you know, move forward as the rainbow nation. That that that, that I find incredible to to go through what he went through and to come out the other side, you know, wanting peace and prosperity for everyone. I think that's amazing. Mm. And also to go through that and be so staunch in your beliefs that you would refuse a pardon based on the the fact that you wanted to keep up your sort of emphasis on changing the country. Mm. by violent means if necessary. I mm. think there is a lot to be admired there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and and I know this is a tricky moral issue, but it's easy to think that anyone who's involved in violence at all, then they're automatically bad. But I think you have to try and frame it within what was going on at the time. And, you know, apartheid was absolutely horrible. And to try and resist that, with some with some bombings, with some sabotage. Personally, I think that's I think that's perfectly permissible. No, I, and I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. Sure. S- strong words there from Retrospecticus. Mm. Um, but uh, that I believe brings us to the end of our uh, our broadcast. I think so. I think so. Excellent. So, would you like to tell them how they can get in touch with us? Yep. Yep. If if, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can eel. Eel. If you like, you, you, you can you can send us an eel, or you can email us. We are podcast at retrospecticus.org, or you can tweet at us. We are at underscore retrospecticus on Twitter, and you can find us on all the major podcasting networks, including iTunes. Thanks ever so much to the people who've given us five-star reviews it makes us feel great so if anyone else would like to leave us a five-star review that would be very welcome yes yes indeed yes indeed um i'd like to leave you with a single question tom mm-hmm. uh, and if anybody thinks this isn't simpsons related then they they need to up their meme game <laughs> one question tom is it coming home oh god <laughs> and on that bombshell we'll see you next time okay bye everyone Hang on a minute, Tom. Didn't Nelson Mandela die in prison? Oh, well, okay. Now, what you're referring to there is the Mandela effect. And I am a sceptic, and I love talking about the Mandela effect. So, yeah, okay, let's do that. So there is this, I don't know what you'd call it, really, a phenomenon, really, in psychology, where people are convinced that history is different to what it actually is. And this effect is called the Mandela effect because when Mandela died in 2013, a lot of people, mostly Americans to be fair, went, hang on a minute, didn't Nelson Mandela die in prison in 1991? And everyone else went, no. But enough people went, no, I'm sure he did. You know, and and enough people got together to almost come up with this grand conspiracy that Nelson Mandela did die in 1991. And it didn't help that they found a book. I can't remember the name of the book, but there was a book published in about 1995, which has one sentence which makes reference to Nelson Mandela dying in 1991. Hmm. So... So, you know, how someone makes a mistake like that, I've got absolutely no idea. And I love reading about the explanations for it because the explanations are so creative. There's this... The main explanation that I've read is that we live in sort of alternating dimensions and dimensions that split off in different time periods. Is this not the film Sliding Doors? Yeah, a bit, a bit. It's also not dissimilar to that episode of Red Dwarf where where 
they invent a craft that can jump across oh, dimensions. Yes, and the holly hop drive. Oh, that's a slightly different one, but um, oh, God. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the idea is that we were all in a dimension where Nelson Mandela died in 1991, and something happened, and we shifted over to a dimension where he didn't die. But a bunch of people remembered him dying in 1991, and it definitely happened. Um, one of my favourite li- li- little things about this is um, some people blame what's going on at CERN, you know, these high-level physics experiments. They, they think, well, they're, they're having all sorts of effects, and you know, we can't even predict what the effects are going to be. And their evidence for this is that there's a video produced by CERN which is a parody of that Farrell Williams song, Happy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I'm happy. And it's a little compilation of lots of scientists at CERN in all the different places doing the little happy dance. And there's this one guy who's holding up a sign. And in one hand, he's got Mandela. No, no, what is it? In one hand, he's got a sign that says Bond number one. And in the other hand, it says Mandela. And all of the Mandela effect fans are going, look, see, 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 he's holding a sign that says Mandela. He's trolling us. He knows what's going on. But the actual explanation of that is is, is quite cool because um, people try to work out, what does that mean, Bond number one? Well, surely it's the, the sudden occurrence of George Lazenby for a single film in the uh, Bond franchise, ah, which ah. has obviously been cut in from another dimension. Ah, you're on the right track, but it's James Bond related. <laughs> Because a lot of people thought Bond number one, oh, is that a chemistry thing or a physics thing? You know, you have bonds in chemistry. Um, but the first James Bond, and I'm not a Bond expert, but I've been told that the first James Bond was played by Barry Nelson. Yes, I believe that was in a radio play of some sort. Mm, mm. So his sign, his signs, in fact, said Nelson Mandela. So he was <laughs> right. So he, so he was doing a little tribute to uh, a little tribute to Nelson Mandela. Yeah, rather than announcing that they had somehow been responsible for a dimensional shift that had brought yes. Mandela back to life for several years. Yes, and what I find about what I find interesting about the Mandela effect is 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 I think that to believe in its existence, that can only happen in our current time period, because we're in an age now. Where if you want to know something, you can look it up almost instantly. But before, if if you grew up in like the eighties or whatever, and you remembered a book that you had as a kid or a TV show that you saw, if you remembered it and got it slightly wrong, then you can meet other people who've got it slightly wrong. But you can look up what it was. So I very much doubt in twenty years' time we'll have kids saying, "Do you remember that stuff from t- two thousand eighteen?" Oh, I thought it said something else than it did actually say. Whereas, whereas before that, you couldn't really look stuff up. And there's absolutely tons of examples of the Mandela effect in uh, films and science fiction. So, uh, what's a good one? Um, Forrest Gump. Does anyone in that film say, life is like a box of chocolates? No, they don't. Uh, the line I think is for us saying something like my mum always said to me life was like a box of chocolate and his mother says life is a box of chocolates yeah but at no point does anyone say life is like a box of chocolates people people it's actually used as a metaphor but people are remembering it as a simile I think so I think so yeah and people have had lots of ideas about this it's it's easier to remember something that's uh, that's in the present tense than it is in the past or future tense. Um, oh, another good one is C-3PO from Star Wars. One of his legs, I think it's his right leg, is silver below the knee, and it always has been. But if you just ask someone what does C-3PO look like, then they'll go, oh, he's gold. And then you point out, no, no, look closer, look closer. One of his legs is silver. People go, oh. <gasps> Oh my God! When did that happen? And it and it can be enough of a shock that you know 
you see something from a film that you've loved all your life and realised you've got something completely wrong. Yeah it, yeah, it can be a bit of a shock to people. Mind you, really, we've only got George Lucas to blame for that one with all the changes he's made to uh, the original Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> it would, I could well believe he decided to paint part of C-3PO a different colour. I wonder yeah. if that's why C-3PO has a red arm in um, the seventh film as well. Oh, it could be. It could be. That could be a little nod to the Mandela effect. Hmm. That'd be quite cool, actually. Um and and, and, and and yeah, there are loads and loads loads more examples. Some of them from quite little things like um the man on the Monopoly box. You know, what eye has he got his monocle on? Uh annoyingly I've got two Monopoly boxes just over there and I can't see <laughs> either of them. Well uh, is this a trick question? Does he not have a monocle? It is a trick question. He doesn't have a monocle. I remember giving a talk about the Mandela effect and you, and I used the Monopoly Man as an example, and I said, "This is this is an, this is an example of people's minds filling in the blanks." Mm. So he's posh. He's got a waistcoat, and he's got a cane, and he's got a top hat. So therefore, you assume that you must have the monocle as well, like Lord Snooty from the Beano. I looked up Lord Snooty from the Bo- I looked up Lord Snooty from the Beano. He doesn't have a monocle either. Ah. So have monocles just been made up, or are we now in a dimension where monocles no longer exist? Oh, oh! I, I, I'll, I'll have to look up some footage of Patrick Moore. Did Patrick Moore ever wear a monocle? <laughs> be amazing. Um, so yeah, what, what what else can I say about the Mandela effect? That is about that is about it. Mm. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, but, but there are loads of examples of it. And some of, some of the examples people give, you ju- you you just you just read them and go, what? No, <laughs> how could you get that wrong, you idiot? A lot of them are quite culturally specific. So so the big one given on the internet is the Berenstain Bears. Oh yes, and yes. I knew very little about them because because I thought they're more of an American thing. And I can't remember which which way round it is, but everyone assumed that the stain in Berenstain stain was spelled S T E I N. Yeah, but it's actually spelled as in stain, as in a stain on your clothes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 people convince themselves that no, 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 it's the other way around. It's the other way around. I I, I possibly had a little bit uh, of a Mandela effect on the last episode because because we were talking about. The end of um, Bart the General, where he's on the where he's on the desk do, do, doing a little piece to camera. For some reason, I always assumed that in his list of good wars was the Vietnam War, and it's not. And you know, I haven't gone. Oh, there must have been a dimension shift back then, and he changed <laughs> what he said. And it's, it's, no, 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 it, it's it, it's just it's just me remembering it wrong. And I and I also had another little personal one. Um, I've got I, I've I've got a young daughter, and of course I've got lots of books. And one of those books is The Gruffalo, and it's written by Julia Donaldson. And the illustrator, I assumed for a long, long time he was called Alex Scheffler. He's not. He's called Axel Scheffler. Oh, it's one of those things where where you just get a glance of it and go, "Yeah, that's Alex. Fine, carry on." Yeah. Yeah, um, because you're expecting to see Alex more than you're expecting to see Axel. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, that's the Mandela effect. Fantastic. And for those of you brave enough to have listened to us uh, right the way through, uh, I now say a thank you very much and a hearty goodbye. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>